At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, we believe theological education should be confessional. Because of our desire to identify with what Christ has done in His Church throughout the centuries, we fully adhere to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. This standard keeps us accountable and preserves us from novelty. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. Welcome to the Man of God Network. The Man of God Network is a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. For more recordings, go to sermonaudio.com and do a search at The Narrated Puritan. For the introduction this morning, the book that is within my hand is called A History of Kentucky Baptists from 1769 to 1885. It's talking about a place called Town Fork Church derived its name from a small tributary of the Elkhorn, which flows through the city of Lexington and was located a short distance from that town. This little church was remarkable principally for having its enjoyed the pastoral services of the distinguished John Gano, and for its having been the occasion of dividing Elkhorn Association. Town Fork Church united with Elkhorn Association the same year in which the former was constituted and remained a member of that body till it dissolved. John Gano appears to have been its first pastor. But who was John Gano? From the history of the Restorationist movement, Gano was a famous Baptist preacher whose claim to fame begins with the baptism of George Washington. Gano was Washington's personal chaplain during the Revolutionary War. His grandson, John Allen Gano, was one of the greatest gospel preachers of the Restoration Movement in Kentucky. It was said that John Allen baptized more people in Kentucky than any other man. Wikipedia states that Gano was born in 1727 and died in 1804. He was a Baptist minister and Revolutionary War chaplain who allegedly baptized his friend General George Washington. He was raised as a Presbyterian. His father was a descendant of the French Calvinist Huguenots and his mother of English Baptists. After a powerful conversion experience, he eventually became a Calvinist Baptist as a young man after a period of intense study. Gano left a family farm to study at Princeton University, then the College of New Jersey, but left after graduating. He was ordained as a pastor of the Scotch Plains New Jersey Baptist Church on May 29, 1754. In 1760, he became the founding pastor of what later became the first Baptist church in the city of New York. He served as a pastor of the New York church until 1787. However, he made long itinerant trips evangelizing throughout the 13 colonies, asserting, I had a right to proclaim free grace wherever I went. In my hand is a book called Biographical Memoirs of the late Reverend John Gano of Frankfort, Kentucky, formerly of the city of New York, written principally by himself. It was published in the year 1806. In a preface it says, the following publication originated in the great desire, which some of the children of the author expressed, to have him write a history of his life. Being on a visit in Kentucky in the winter of 1789 and 90, I joined my brothers in persuading him to indulge us by spending his leisure hours and committing his life to writing. 
We had often been entertained by him with anecdotes of his life, which we supposed would be instructive and amusing to others, and therefore had a wish that the public might reap a benefit from the same source. No doubt the partiality of a child may feel a peculiar interest in many things relative to a fond, indulgent, and affectionate parent, which may be uninteresting to strangers. Yet upon mature deliberation, I conceived the publication of his biography might conduce to the edification of serious readers and exhibit the important facts, which infidelity rejects, that there are in the world real Christians. He titles his autobiography, My Own Life. In compliance with the request of part, if not all of my family, to leave some memorials of my life which I should much more cheerfully undertake had I spent it to better purposes, and more faithfully in the services of my God and society, both civil and sacred, to which I have long since considered myself and viably to owe every part of it. The only query I now have is whether this will not be deemed useless or whether it is more innocently spent than in the omission of it. But to begin my life, to scatter scraps of which only memory at present can collect, having none of the remarks at hand, which I have heretofore incorrectly committed to paper, which would at least furnish me with dates, and without which I am at a loss to begin. My own life suggests progenitors which were on my father's side from France, on my mother's from Britain. My great-grandfather, Francis Gano, brought my grandfather, Stephen Gano, when a child from Guernsey in Jersey, it being a time of bloody persecution, flight or the relinquishment of the Protestant religion, of which he was a professor, were the only means of preserving his life. He chose the former. One of his neighbors had been martyred in the day, and in the evening he was determined on as a victim for the next day, information of which he received in the dead of the night. He thereupon chartered a vessel, removed his family on board, and in the morning was out of sight of the harbor. Of what number his family consisted, I'm not able to say. On his arrival in America, he settled in New Rochelle, in the state of New York, and lived to the age of 103. My parents continued living on Staten Island until they had two children, Daniel and Jane. They then removed to New Jersey and settled in Hopewell, Hunterdon County, where were born Stephen, Susanna, myself, Nathaniel, David, and Sarah. At the age of six years, I well remember being seized with a severe sickness in the spring, from which I did not recover until the fall, during which time, as I have since understood, the linen was procured in which to lay me out, supposing I was actually dead, as I lay a great part of the time perfectly senseless. When I recovered, I was sent to a common country school and had a strict religious education, my mother being a pious Baptist, which she publicly professed in her youth, and my father being a steady Presbyterian, took care that I was made well acquainted with the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism, which before my conversion summoned my attention to preaching. If the sentiments I then heard disclose answered to the doctrines in which I was taught, they met my approbation, and if not, my displeasure was the consequence. In early life I had some severe convictions of sins, conscious I must die and go to judgment, and that I must be renewed by grace or perish as a sinner. But these convictions were transient and of short duration. 
As I advanced in years, I progressed in youthful vanity and sin. I became exceedingly anxious to excel my companions in work and amusements, and especially in their country frolics and dances. I was frequently admonished by my parents for working to excess, but much more frequently for my attachment to vanity. I cannot charge myself with irreverence to my parents, but when my pious mother would expostulate with me, I seized the opportunity to vindicate myself. One morning when I came into her presence, having been out late the night before, she fixed her eyes upon me, said not a word, and a pious parental tear stole down her cheek, which struck me with more conviction than I ever remember to have felt before, which I could not eradicate by any reply, and which caused these reflections to sink deep in my mind. Do my present follies cause so much pain to the most pious and most tender of parents? What must be the consequence when they recoil on my own soul? Recoil they must, if not before, at least in the day of judgment. And there I must see this parent, whose tears now condole my case, smile an acquiescent consent in the dreadful sentence of eternal banishment from the righteous judge. These reflections cause many resolutions, which were shamefully broken for a time, yet a sense of my dangerous situation would now and then fill my mind with melancholy sensations, and does even now while writing it. When I was about fifteen years of age, my brother Stephen, who was then in his twentieth year, died. He was before and in the first part of his illness deeply concerned for the salvation of his soul, of which before his death he professed a strong hope. When he expressed his hope, and what he said under his conviction greatly engaged my resolution to seek an acquaintance, if possible, with Christ. Probably a great part of this exercise flowed from natural affections as time gradually wore it away. This has caused me to omit many impressions which had some appearance of convictions, such as escapes from apparent danger of death by various means incidental to youth, the deaths of others, and so on and so on. Between two and three years after this, the dysentery seized the family excepting my father and myself. They were brought exceeding low, and a brother and two sisters fell victims to the disorder, one of whom was in her twentieth year. It was a more alarming to me, as it brought to my mind a prediction, which had been early imposed on my father, and which I had often heard him mention with apparent cheerfulness, which prediction was that he would have many children, as in reality he had, and that three of them should die in their twentieth year. As I was next in point of years, the thought continually haunted me, and made me sensible that I was not prepared for such an awful change. My next brother, soon after this, died in the twentieth year of his age. Whenever I could dispel those gloomy thoughts, I was more at ease and more vile and vain than ever, which continued and even increased until the Christmas before I was nineteen years of age. That time I determined to spend a jovial evening with my frolicking companions. As, however, there was a sermon to be preached on that day near to the place where I lived, I concluded to attend both. After sermon, my mind turned on the inconsistency of my conduct in spending a day, where God was served, and a night, 
in the service of the devil. This led me to consider more closely than ever that if a day was regarded as a birth of Christ, a holy Savior, through whom alone we could look for salvation, how improper it was to spend it in open rebellion. This brought me to a resolution that I would spend my time in a more consistent manner than I had done, and, blessed be God, before the year terminated, I was brought under some serious impressions which arose from a conversation with a person whom I suppose really pious and sincere. He advanced something which my own soul told me was just, but vainly supposing I could shake his belief, I readily undertook to argue with him, which so confused him that he requested me to stop, with which I cheerfully complied, being fully satisfied with the victory I had obtained." We parted, and in a few minutes it occurred to my mind that I had acted improperly, that I had been instigated by the devil to oppose truth and glory. I appeared to myself to be a worshiper of Satan, and it seemed that all the advantages I possessed were employed to the dishonor of God. And I thought it was a miracle of mercy and grace that he did not make me an everlasting monument of his displeasure. It became my ardent wish that if there was a possibility of pardon for my sins and transgressions, I might not rest either night or day until I had obtained it, which was in some measure the case, although my trials under conviction were of long continuance. I embraced every opportunity in my power in attending preaching, reading godly books, and praying either mentally or aloud. There was a total change in my company and conduct, but I soon found by experience what I had early learned from my Bible, that a change of heart was necessary, and that the power of God's grace only could accomplish it, which I was afraid would never be granted. I was, however, determined to seek it to the latest hour of my existence. I cannot express the anguish with which my mind was frequently oppressed, with the idea of being eternally banished from God, in endless despair to everlasting destruction. I saw I deserved it, and at times concluded it was unavoidable. My prayers were selfish and sinful. I often thought that I offended God in asking for pardon when justice appeared so pointedly against it. In short, I appeared to myself the vilest of sinners, more worthless and odious than the meanest reptile and the greatest hypocrite in the world. It appeared that what I felt was only natural remorse and not a genuine conviction that God's wrath was a prelude of his lasting displeasure. Impressed with these feelings, I concluded I was willing to be saved, and that if I awaited the assistance of God, it was all I could do, for it was by his grace that I could be saved. This in some measure afforded me a kind of deluded ease until I heard a sermon from these words in Solomon's Song 3, Go forth, O you daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon, and so on. From which discourse I plainly saw the alienation of my heart, that the fault was owing to myself if I was not saved, and that God was waiting to be gracious. Never before had I seen so much of the evil of my hard and obstinate heart. From that time the nature of my conviction was altered and my grief was greater. I knew that I must be changed and that it was to be effected by God and that he would effect it was my most fervent wish. But how he could be just and save me, I knew not. That he could be just and condemn me, 
That appeared plain. In this state I remained for some time, and it was some satisfaction to my mind that God would secure his own glory and the honor of his Son. In his temper of mind, the way of salvation through the life, death, and mediation of the glorious Savior appeared plain. I contemplated on the amazing wisdom and goodness of God and condescension of Christ. My soul was enraptured, amazed, and confounded, that with all my ingratitude I could still be saved. My mind was enlightened, and my guilt and fear of punishment was removed. Yet notwithstanding the alteration I felt, I am not sensible that I thought of its being a real conviction. I was afraid my convictions would not be lasting, and I prayed for a continuance of them. I was constrained at times to rejoice in God and His salvation, and in this state continued some time until the sermon from these words, with light and power, fasted on my mind. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. I trust they were so applied that I cannot put them from me. They opened the way of salvation, the suitableness, fullness, and willingness of God, and I was enabled to appropriate them to myself and rejoice in Christ. This is a time from which I dated my conversion, and I think I walked in the light of God's countenance and had many blessed promises which strengthened and confirmed my hope in and humbled me before God. About this time, there were a number of young people of my acquaintance in the neighborhood who were under serious concern for their souls, and as I had in my distress warned them of their exposure to the wrath of God, I can now point out to them Christ and the method of salvation through him. As my soul felt what I said, it seemed as if God made them sensible of it. We assembled on evenings to pray and converse, and I now believe that this was a useful part of my life. I was inclined to become a preacher, but thought it my duty to wait and pursue literary acquirements. Indeed, I had not then made an open profession or joined the church. For some reasons, I wished to join that of the Presbyterian, and as the communion season was approaching, I expected some examination. I took the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Bible with a few honestly to profess them. The doctrines appeared thoroughly grounded and perfectly consonant with the Bible until I came to the doctrine of baptism. The proofs there adduced fell far short of my expectations and appeared foreign to the point. I then took the Bible, especially the New Testament, and searched it for months together and inquired for and obtained all the disputes, especially in favor of infant baptism, that I could hear of. I, however, could find nothing that seemed to me to amount to a divine warrant. I went to a presbytery on purpose to converse with a Mr. Tennant, or rather to be instructed by him. A favorable opportunity presented, and from my attachment to the man and a deference to his opinion, and the confidence he appeared to have of the justice of infant baptism, I was induced to embrace his sentiments. But on the road home it turned in my mind that this was not the way I had obtained the hope of salvation, or consonant with my former resolutions to make the word of God my only rule of faith and practice. Let Mr. Tennant be ever so good a man, his belief is not a divine warrant for me to act upon. Before I got home, I was determined to try further to see for myself. Soon after, 
Mr. Miller, a Baptist minister, inquiring of me why I did not profess Christ openly and join some church, I told him my difficulty. He replied that God's word and spirit would direct me, and if I attended to them impartially, they would remove my doubts. And if they did not make me a Baptist, he did not wish to do it. This conversation led me to inquire if I had done so. I was soon convinced I had not, but had only searched for something to confirm me in the doctrine of infant baptism, which I had received from my education. I really think that if any person was ever induced to take the word of God in hand, with a fervent desire to be free from all prepossessions, to seize the truth as it really was, and to let the Bible be their guide, I was. A number of inconsistencies perplexed me in my infant baptism, and Providence gave me an opportunity to disclose some of them. I happened to spend an evening with Mr. Tennant and some of my Presbyterian friends when I was drawn into the conversation from the supposition that I was the person who conversed with him at the presbytery. He asked me if I was yet satisfied or wished to converse further on the subject, I told him I did so, provided it would be agreeable to bring in all my objections, with which he complied. I then related to him the thoughts with which I left him, and those which occurred after, and mentioned that after conversing with him, I had an opportunity of attending the baptism of a child, when a minister in his prayer uttered these words, Lord, bless so much of this element as is used in this ordinance the washing away of original pollution, which struck me very forcibly. He, however, condemned it. I also remarked to him that the minister, in speaking, called it a seal of the covenant of grace, which I told him appeared to be saying too much of any external ordinance, that the blood of Christ was a seal, that he also, in my view, was a covenant, and that God's word and spirit applying to our consciences was a seal. I wished, if I was wrong, that he would put me right. I also mentioned that I had my doubts whether baptism was a substitute for circumcision, both being at use at the same time, and even ought to be, as the cutting off of the Messiah and the shedding of his blood was appointed at in that ordinance till it was accomplished, that the same subjects relating to both were useless if one was a substitute for the other. Their subjects were different, and the end and design of the ordinances appeared to me to be different. I mentioned these and other difficulties with a sincere desire of being instructed, but I had neither my doubts confirmed or removed. I was, however, much pleased with the goodness and candor of the man who closed with this address. Dear young man, if the devil cannot destroy your soul, he will endeavor to destroy your comfort and usefulness, and therefore do not be always doubting in this manner. If you cannot think as I do, think for yourself. I then endeavored to learn my duty from the New Testament as being a New Testament ordinance, and found that it was from heaven, had its authority from God, and became binding by a positive command. The characters of those who were to be baptized were disciples, penitent believers, and such as had received the Holy Ghost. I could not find by any of the apostles' practice that any others were encouraged or permitted unless they included as Simon Magus did. And the apostles declared him to have no part or lot in that matter. The end of design was to fulfill righteousness, to answer a good conscience. All things considered, I could see no ground for infant baptism in the New Testament. 
I next turned my attention to the mode which appeared so plain in the example of Christ, in the places where he had ministered, and the reasons why he had ministered in those places, insomuch that I was soon established in the belief that immersion was the only mode which could be gathered from the New Testament, and with this mode my conscience pressed me to comply. I then addressed my father on the subject. I told him his constant religious care over me entitled him to all the gratitude I was capable of rendering, and yet I must beg his indulgence. I believed he was conscientious in having me baptized in my infancy, as he had supposed, and I had tried to suppose it right. But on the whole, I was convinced it was my duty to be baptized by immersion, and that it relied on the profession of my own faith if the church would receive me. He replied that what he did he thought right, and in a discharge of his own conscience. If I was conscientious, as he was thankful to God that he had reason to believe I was, from his observance of my searching the scriptures, and the time I had taken therein, and the books I had read, I had his full and free consent, and it was my duty to make profession that whenever I went to offer myself, he would go with me and give the church his consent, and answer any inquiries respecting my life if they chose to make any, and that he would go and see me baptized. This he did, and there were a number of baptized with me. I believe from this time my father changed his opinion on the subject although he never confessed it, until a few months before his death, which happened in the 87th year of his age. So in closing, John Gano received a limited education and was ordained May 29, 1754, as a pastor of the Scotch Plains, New Jersey Baptist Church. He traveled and he preached extensively in the southern colonies and for a couple of years as a resident pastor in North Carolina. He returned to his native state in 1760, and he also preached for a while in Philadelphia and New York. He received a call to become a pastor of the newly organized First Baptist Church on Gold Street in New York City and remained at its head for 26 years. He was an ardent patriot and in the War of the Revolution served for some time as chaplain to General Clinton's New York Brigade. In the conflict on Chatterton Hill, he was continually under fire and displayed a cool and quiet courage which commanded the admiration of officers and men. In May 1788, he left his New York charge and became pastor of a church in Town Fork, Kentucky, where he continued to officiate until his death. He was twice married. His first wife was Sarah, daughter of John Stiles of Scotch Plains, and sister-in-law of President James Manning of Brown University. He died at Frankfurt, August 10th, 1804. That was taken from the National Encyclopedia of American Biography, 1909. Thank you for tuning in to this podcast. This is the narrated Puritan on SermonAudio.com.